Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Aaron Barker. That's right. My vagina is super wrinkle-free. <laughs> now here's the show. Kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is the new Master Sounds behind me now, and we are calling this week's episode Perseverance. <laughs> it's a good title for a show that's entering our 11th year here now. I'll tell you, I'm recording this on October uh, 20th, and we had a scare this weekend. You know, on Facebook, there is a very, very active group called the Risk Podcast Fans Discussion Group. And and lots of fans go there to talk about the stories, to say, hey, does anyone remember what the story was where this happened? Or, oh my gosh, this story really affected me in such and such a way. Well, just like on the podcast... People get really real sometimes there. People, you know, are very heartfelt about the things that they, the intimate things they share there. And last night, Saturday night, someone posted that they were in crisis. I'm not exactly sure what was going on, but this person was in trouble or the message sounded life or death. I was super, super grateful that so many members of the community there uh, were trying to reach out and help, you know, offering uh, love and support, especially some of the folks uh, here on the risk staff, Cindy Freeman and Brad Lawrence and John LaSala were doing everything they possibly could to see if we could find out who that person was, who knew that person, who could, you know, maybe make sure that that person was okay. The latest we've heard is that that person was okay. So I wish that person the very, very, very best. I hope that this podcast and its storytellers and its community of fans are all a living testament to the fact that life can be brutally hard and that perseverance is worth it. You might have noticed that I have not done a check-in on the Patreon for a while now. That's because I had a summer that just went from rough to rougher to rougher, and I was afraid of expressing too much negativity in the check-ins there. You know, I wanted to be constructive and pro, um, what do you call it? positive <laughs> as much as possible about how to how to present how things are going with me and the show and all of that you know and this episode too in little ways and big ways i think will be one more example of how life has its ups and 
downs. And it's all about remembering what you love, what you value, what you're grateful for, what you believe in, and and who who you love, starting with yourself. Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear from the absolutely wonderful Erin Barker. Oh my gosh, I'm such a big admirer of Erin's. She runs, well, she is the creative, the artistic director of the show, The Story Collider. Uh, It's a live show and a podcast where people tell stories that have something or other to do with science. But before that, we're going to hear from the wonderful Chris Redd, who you know from Saturday Night Live. Chris was brand new to storytelling when he first came to Risk. Uh, This was, I can't remember if this was his first or his second story that he shared with us. I think this might have been his first, but such a joy to work with. Such a spirit of learning. Like, oh yeah, let's try this out. Let me experiment with this. Tell me what usually works. All that sort of thing. So he was a real joy to work with. Now, this was recorded a while back and we've been holding on to it for a long time because we weren't sure if the audio quality was good enough. We have had, I'll tell you, we have had so many problems with audio on Los Angeles shows over the years and finally we figured, ah, fuck it, the audio's good enough, there's a bit of a hiss, but you can still hear the story just fine. So here he is now, this is Chris Red with a story we call Just Kids. So, uh, I was chaotic as a kid. I was a very wild child. I had southern parents, very militant, uh, black parents. I grew up in Mississippi, Jackson, and Kosciuszko. Kosciuszko so country, you don't know where the fuck that is right now, which is a symbol of how country it was. A very dry county. And they grew up in the 60s, 70s. So you could imagine the racism that they've seen. They moved us out to the west side of Chicago, and I was like, oh, black people. And then they moved us out to this place called Naperville, which is like if Wonder Bread was a place. <laughs> I was so mad we moved there. Not the fact that I hate white people, but I just like being around people that look like me. And we had moved from St. Louis, where it was mixed, and I was like, the next place we go better be all black. It was definitely not. My parents always try to prepare us for the world. My dad was always more militant than my mom. He was always giving us quotes. And anybody who's black, who grew up black and stayed black, has heard these quotes before. It would be quotes like, hey, listen, you gotta work twice as hard to get the same opportunities as these white people, okay? And sometimes when you work just as hard, you still aren't an equal, and that's just how shit goes. So you have to persevere. It's a major one. One was, don't be late. Because if you late one time, you late all the time. And then my favorite, what he would say was, white women gonna get you in trouble. <laughs> yes. And I went to school with a bunch of white girls. I was like, Dad, I don't know if I can take it. I don't know if I cannot date one of these white women. 
He's like, listen, you better listen to me. Shoot, OJ, I bet he wish he had had me as a friend. <laughs> and as funny as that is, if OJ had one wish that would actually work, I don't think your friendship would be the thing. <laughs> and my mom would always sit there, and she's, you know, the bread wasn't a very professional, had a corporate job. She's the reason why we were able to live in this suburb. She would hear these quotes that my dad would tell me, and she would be like, your father is crazy as hell. <laughs> but he ain't all the way wrong. But they're not all bad. You have to understand that. Making blanket statements about a race is wrong. That's what they did to us, so don't do that to them. <laughs> One day, it was, I was 15 years old, and I walked out to my car. I had just started driving and she had my permit. So sometimes I drive by myself to the store to grab eggs. <laughs> oh, as a kid, ooh, going to the store to grab eggs was an adventure. <laughs> I listen to what I want to listen to. I'm gonna grab the shit out these eggs. I did an extra lap before I came home. So I was like, yo, can I go to the store and grab whatever you need? She's like, yeah, go get me a mop. I'm like, for sure. I don't know where the mop is, so that's gonna take a long time. I might go to my friend Jordan's house. So I walked out to the car, and nigga was written on my car with the ER. So I knew it was white people. Because if it hadn't been A, I'm like, those niggas crazy. Also, when did they move on to the street? Because I thought we were the only niggas here. But it was an ER, so I needed justice. I was mad. I was enraged. I ran inside. I said, fuck that mop. Somebody wrote nigga on the car with the ER. My dad was like, must have been white people. That's what I thought, too. Dad, we got to do something. We got to get revenge. My dad looked at me and was like, revenge? The fuck are you, a supervillain? What the fuck you mean revenge? No, we're not getting revenge. No, we're not doing that. I was mad. I sat down. He's like, listen, we're going to do something, all right? We're going to do something that they going to remember. They never going to forget it. And I was like, hell yeah, let's do some Malcolm X shit. Fuck some shit up. He's like, no. Nah, we're going to do something, though. We never going to move, ever. We're going to be here for a long time. <laughs> Call all your thug friends. We're going to have a block party. There's going to be a whole bunch of black people out here. They're like, Who, where do I sharpie the car? All these cars. <laughs> That's how we going to get them back. And that was funny. It wasn't funny to me at the time because I was mad. That was my 1999 Nissan. That was burgundy that people thought was purple. And I hated that. That's the bad thing about driving a burgundy car, that you always have to have that conversation. Oh, yo, Chris, you got that purple car? It's burgundy! Burgundy is edgy. <laughs> I was mad. I was about to storm off. My dad was like, sit down. I'm like, I don't want to sit down. Then he looked at me and I sat down, because I'm not stupid. He was like, listen, son. You know how hard it is to be a racist? And I looked at him crazy as shit for that. I was like, no. To be a racist, you have to be mad all the time. Constantly. You have to just be blocking information. Constantly just mad and ignorant. That takes a lot of work. 
I was mad at your mama for three hours and I was tired. <laughs> They're mad constantly. And what we gotta do? Well, yeah, it's hard for us. We gotta wake up, we have to survive in a country that wasn't really set up for us. And we have to survive in that every single day. But when you start succeeding, you get on a roll, right? And as you start succeeding, people wake up mad at that. Well, how do you beat a racist? You keep succeeding. So what I'm gonna do is while I gotta wipe off that Sharpie on that car today, he can't ever wipe off my success, so he gonna stay mad. And that was real as hell, but I was on my Malcolm X shit, so I didn't wanna hear that. <laughs> but I was like, damn, dad, can't we just throw rocks or something? <laughs> at who? Who we gonna throw rocks at? We gonna be out here just some niggas throwing rocks? No. <laughs> you right, all right. So I'm about to leave the room. And my dad was like, hey, if you see a white boy out there with a Sharpie, you kick his ass, though, you hear me? I'm like, all right, for sure, for sure. I didn't see him, though. Then he called out one more time, and he was like, hey, don't do nothing crazy tonight, because I know how you are. I'm like, I'm not going to do nothing crazy. That night, I did something crazy. <laughs> I called my safe suburb friends. I didn't call my city friends, because I knew it would be a very different turnout. I call my suburb friends, Chris and Kevin, two of the safest black people I know. <laughs> Super safe. I'll tell you how safe they are. They were both with me hanging out in my car in front of my own house. Police pulled up because some of our neighbors didn't think we lived there, even though they've seen me for four or five years. They put me in cuffs, right? And them two yelling, angry, mad, cuffless, just running around, screaming. That's how safe they were as people. So I was like, yo, they just did that new curfew for the kids, right? You gotta be inside by 12 o'clock. I say we stay out all night in the park and just be out. <laughs> that was the way of me fighting back racism. <laughs> By going to a park and just hanging out past curfew. I didn't have my riot shit together yet. I was just trying to do something to fight the system. And they were like, why are we going to a park, dog? That seems lonely. <laughs> that was Kevin. And Chris was like, yeah, I agree with Kevin, because dad, why are we going to a park? <laughs> I was like, no, no, I'm going to call some girls. You know what I'm saying? Ashy and her friends. Beautiful, beautiful girls, man. Everybody wanted Ashy and her friends. Ashy was the finest one. That's why she had a name. <laughs> <laughs> They were all great girls, they're all cheerleaders, super dope, but I, Ashley was my crush, that's why I only remember her. There was Stephanie and some other people there. So I was like, no, I'm gonna get Ashley, her friends to come, and we all just gonna have a little kicking session in the park, past curfew, be some badasses, show the system, we don't give a fuck, but like in the middle of the night though, you know? <laughs> they were like, oh, if her friends come, we down. So I call Ashley, I could just hear her beautiful ass hair on the phone when I call. <laughs> Even dialing her numbers felt different. <laughs> do, do, do. It's like, hey, Ashley. She's like, hey. I know her hey wasn't that long, but it just felt long. I was like, hey, Ashley, uh, you know, they got that curfew, right? But I think we should say fuck that curfew and just like hang out at the park. You, me, my guys, your girls. We just have a good time. She was like, yeah, I ain't got shit to do. I called my girl to see if we down. So she went, she called, everything was set. 
called the dudes. They were good. They were like, yo, shall I bring condoms? I'm like, don't be gross. <laughs> but also, yeah, bring a condom or two. Don't be a dirtbag, but also maybe. Yeah, yeah, we, <laughs> Me and Ashley had flirted, but we never talked about that, so I didn't have high hopes, but just being around it was dope, right? So, 12 o'clock comes. I crashed at my friend Chris's house because his house was the easiest to sneak out of. I was planning that shit, right? So we met at the park, six of us, you know? Oh, no, I brought my little brother because I make bad decisions. He's like, let me hang out. I'm like, fuck, come on, dude. Because I knew Kevin wasn't going to, he's a like, real Christian type, so he wasn't going to try to like mack on any girls. He's going to try to have like unsexy conversation. So I figured my brother was a good filler for him. Ashley ended up bringing two of her cousins that I didn't know. So they were all hanging out. My friend Chris was in the little kid tube with Stephanie. And that had to be the most uncomfortable sexual shit ever. They're in a kid tube. There's no way to naturally be like, so what's up, girl? It's weird. But they were in there. So I was like, oh, Chris. I had a blanket I put out for Ashley. She was sitting there, wind blowing. It wasn't even in wind, but her shit was just blowing. God damn, her shit was blowing, boy. Her lips was like, kiss me, but ask first, you know? We were having a great time. Kevin was there talking about some unsexy shit. <laughs> Toys R Us was packed today, you know? <laughs> Stupid shit. We were all having a great time in this park. So we were kicking it for three hours, having a good kid time. Chris is in there in that tube doing some crazy shit. Kevin over there talking about the Bible, low key. My brother's just like, I'm outside, you know. <laughs> I can't believe I'm outside. He was having the best night of his life. He was wearing my old Timberlands, a big oversized coat. Just a little 13 year old kid having a good time with the grown kids, you know. So we having a good time, I'm about to get down with Ashley, I'm asking for condoms, and Kevin's like, now you need condoms. But what about Jesus? I'm like, shut the fuck up and give me a condom, dude. He hands me one, and as he hands me one, I hear a siren. And that's a sound I'm very familiar with. Like, that's not an ambulance, that's time to go. So I told everybody, yo, I know what that is, let's go. Everybody, I'm rolling up my blanket. <laughs> like the longest blunt you've ever seen in your life, super tight. We already gonna make sure my brother's right with me. Stay with me, because if I lose you, I lose my life. He was like, what's going on? He's just being a kid and shit. I see one cop car, then five cop cars, then six, seven, eight cop cars, two cop cars driving through the golf course. One almost fell into the lake. One almost hit Kevin. It was 15 cop cars for kids with no drugs on them in a park. We were all minorities, right? So I'm like, what the fuck is happening? I'm thinking a murder is happening behind us and we just at the wrong place at the wrong time being kids. So I did the only thing I knew to do was fucking run. I looked at my brother like, yo, you ready to go? He's like, huh, what? And we ran. But he played sports though. He's a fast dude. I'm looking back. He's running. Looking back. Everybody else, they can fend for themselves. Make sure my little brother good. So we ran to the car, our meeting spot. I look back and my brother's not there. I'm like, oh fuck. I look back at where we were at, the park, I could see it clearly. 20 cop cars, two cop vans for kids. Two weeks ago, 
A dude came home, all white family, killed them all, mutilated his whole family, and skipped town to Indiana. How many cop cars showed up to that scene? Two cop cars in a corner. How the fuck are two kids with no drugs and alcohol have 20 fucking cops? That's a lot of cops with like nothing to do. That's crazy. I look back, I'm the only one who made it to the car. I'm like, shit, I gotta go back. I gotta go back for my little brother, if anything. Also, I'm the reason why Kevin and them are still over there. So I'm stealthy as shit, so I go back. I see Chris and Kevin in the cop car being transferred to the vans. I'm like, fuck. If it wasn't for me, these dudes wouldn't have got locked up, man. Like, and my brother's probably in that van just being happy, not knowing what the fuck being arrested feels like. What are these chains? That's not normal, son. So I was like, fuck, I gotta turn myself in. So I walked in, I felt like a hero, kind of. But I knew I was fucked already, because Chris, we were sleeping at his house, and so like, I was already gonna get in trouble, because his mama was like my mama, so she, nothing like getting your ass whooped by a mom you didn't come out of. <laughs> the, the, thing, the thing that, that keeps them from killing you is not there. So they're just going in. And I was late to work, they ain't got shit to do with me. So I walked up to the cops and was like, hey, I'm sorry, I ran too. I think y'all got my little brother. So they slammed me to the ground and all that, put me in cuffs and then put me in the van. Who did I see in that van? Chris, Kevin, no little brother. I was like, fuck! I didn't have to come back for y'all! How'd y'all get caught? Chris told me how he got caught. He was trying to jump a fence that was too high for him. The cop pulled him down, crushed his balls, he fell down, couldn't run anymore. Kevin got caught because he didn't decide to run. He jumped in a bush and pretended to be asleep. <laughs> he pretended to sleep in a bush like it was a thing people do. The cops came by and was like, what the fuck are you doing? He's like, sleeping casually. No! Got arrested. So now I'm in here with these two fucking idiots and they're like, why'd you come back? I thought my brother was here. He's not, so you feel stupid, huh? Like, yeah, motherfucker, I do. But I also couldn't leave y'all, man. So we got to the station. Kevin and Chris didn't even go to the cell. They just went right to the lobby because they had no record at all. I had a couple things. So I was in the cells just like, oh, my little brother's good. My dad came, bailed me out. Came to the lobby, I saw his face and I was like, shit, I know he's mad. I looked at the officers like, hey, he might swing on me. So he was so mad, he was calm. And that's like, mad I hate the most. But I had to ask the police. I'm like, yo, why, why were there so many cop cars for kids that had no drugs on them, you know, no alcohol? We were just outside. And it was like, well, one of the neighbors called and said they saw a bunch of strange, dark individuals and got scared. I was like, what? Yeah, they thought that was a gang doing a drug deal. A three hour drug deal? Do you know how drug deals work, motherfucker? People don't do drug deals and just hang out, no. Also, half of them were girls. My dad and the police officer was like, what girls? I was like, oh shit, uh, none. The girls got away, which is like why I should have rolled with them in the first place. They got away clean. So I got in the car with my pops. And I don't know if you've ever like gotten bailed out of jail or just been in a situation that's bad and your parents come and catch you and you have to have that ride home. 
But that ride home is long as fuck. Cause like he's not saying nothing, but I know he has to say something. And I know he wants to say a lot, but it's purposeful silence. Cause he wants to have you sit there. I'm looking at every light, like why is every light red? <laughs> we pull up to the house and I'm sweating, I'm sweating, jump out the car. He's like, no, 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 no. Get in the car, stay in the car. What you did was stupid and you lost your goddamn brother. We found him. <laughs> you did where? Wait. So he walked five miles past our house <laughs> to the only house he's ever known to go to, his friend Brandon. 6.15 in the morning, this motherfucker rings the doorbell. Brandon mama come out, say, Justin, what you doing out here this early? Justin looked her dead in the eyes and said, out for a morning jog. <laughs> in Timberlands, nigga? Now the whole church gonna think I'm raising stupid ass kids. I wanted to laugh so bad, but I couldn't. I was just glad he was safe. I was like, man, I'm, I'm glad, glad y'all found him. Yeah, you better be glad we found him, shit. Chris, did you do this because of that window or you do this because of them girls? And I was just like, both? You ain't that stupid. Well, you grounded forever. <laughs> but I gotta ask you something. How'd you get caught? Like, we do running drills every morning. You fast as hell. If you wasn't for them grades, you'd be a star on the track team. How the fuck you get caught? And I was like, well, I thought they had Justin, and I went back, found out they ain't had Justin, and I just turned myself in. He's like, oh, yeah, that was stupid, huh? I'm like, yeah, that was stupid as shit. He's like, well, I'm glad you went back for your brother. I'm like, so we ain't gonna tell mom, right? Oh, no, we gotta tell her, because I'm not getting in trouble for you, nigga. <laughs> I learned a lot about like how much I love my family, how much my dad has my back. It's a stereotype in a lot of times, and a lot of people that I know that don't have fathers. And that was a time that showed me that my dad's always been to me, no matter how much chaos I brought to him, which has been a lot. He was always there to teach me something, and I learned a lot from him. So this story is for him. Thank you. Everybody. So, do y'all know that feeling like when you really have to pee, like really bad, like so bad you can't make it to the end of Avengers Infinity War, you have to go now? That feeling? Imagine with me, if you will, this feeling, except it's ten times worse and it doesn't go away for three months. That's where I was at when I was 24 and I was walking into my appointment with a specialist in urology. 
what he told me, unlike all the other doctors that I'd seen before him, was that I didn't have just a really bad bladder infection. I had two rare chronic conditions called interstitial cystitis and vulvodynia. And having those things meant that four things were going to be very painful for me for the foreseeable future. It might always be painful for me because the medication to treat these illnesses takes a long time to heal you years if it works at all. And those four things, I'm very sorry to tell you, were alcohol. It's one. It's one. Caffeine. Yeah, that one hurts. Uh, caffeine always gets a bigger reaction than alcohol for some reason. And the third one was pants. I was not going to be able to wear pants without being in a lot of pain. And the fourth one was, and this is the one that really hurts, y'all, sex. To which I, of course, responded, oh, just those four things? <laughs> just the four things that make life vaguely livable? Cool. No problem. And as I'm sitting there, shell-shocked, he hands me two business cards. And one of them is for a vaginal physical therapist, which is too weird for me to even think about. <laughs> and the other one is for a vaginal surgeon, which just sounds like a nightmare. And he tells me that if the medication doesn't help, these things might be options for me to pursue. And I walk out of this office just feeling just totally shell-shocked and terrified, but also mad. Because what the fuck, medical science? <laughs> like, we can put a man on the moon, but we don't know anything about the human vagina? Like, let's reprioritize, maybe. St start on the ground and work our way up. <laughs> and so... I do what every New Yorker does at some point, which is I cry all the way home on the subway. <laughs> Nobody talks to me, which is perfect. <laughs> because what is really bothering me, if I'm honest, is the fact that I know, I just know that my boyfriend of three years, Justin, is not going to stick around for this. Is who really wants to sign up for an indefinitely sexless relationship? Not a lot of people. Not even really good people. Not even someone who sees every Jason Stay the movie ever made with you. Or bakes you a funfetti cake every year on your birthday. Or once cleaned you up after you shit your pants and barfed all over Kroger's grocery store. <laughs> all of which being things Justin may or may not have done for me over the years. And so I just knew that eventually, even though he was so supportive, he was going to get sick of it. And my gynecologist would always try to cheer me up by giving me some encouraging advice at the end of our appointments, but it always just kind of made me more depressed. There's really nothing like having your 60-something gynecologist remind you that heavy petting and oral sex play can be just as enjoyable as vaginal penetration. <laughs> Thank you, Doc. Also, no. No. <laughs> but aside from that, I also felt like I was losing a part of my identity because I am a blue jeans and beer type of girl. I'm not a skirts and chamomile tea type of girl. 
And so for a while, I tried to hold on to my old habits. I would still order beer when we went out. I would just spit it back into the bottle instead of swallowing, which it turns out is kind of a turnoff for some people. And I would still wear pants every day to work, but I would just like undo them under my desk uh, to make it less painful. And I thought, this is fine, as long as I always remember to zip back up before I get up. Everything will be fine. Until, of course, one day I didn't. And I ended up face-to-face with my boss's boss in the hallway with my pants hanging wide open. Uh, my favorite part of this story is that I never explained myself. I kind of just let that one lie. <laughs> like, not worth explaining. There were times when I felt like I should explain to my coworkers what was going on with me, but I just couldn't see myself going through the whole explanation with them, like... You see, Carl, my bladder doesn't produce lining on its own anymore, and the inflammation irritates my vagina. (laughs) This doesn't feel like a professional conversation. But after the pants incident, I thought, maybe try wearing dresses. See how it goes. So I wore to work one of two dresses that I owned that my mother had bought for me. And I just felt like I was wearing a costume the whole day. I felt like I couldn't be myself. I felt like people were responding to me in a way where I was like this lady or something. And I just was so unhappy all day. And so by the time I left work and I was walking to the subway, I was in a terrible mood. And I'm walking and this guy walks by me and he goes, hey, where are you going? And in this situation where I would just normally laugh it off or keep walking, I'm just so sick of being responded to like a lady that I turn to him and I go, fuck you. And I storm off. Yeah, Yeah, right? Yeah. (laughs) But he comes after me. And I'm thinking, wait, what is happening? I thought I had brought closure to this exchange. (laughs) But he says, Aaron, it's Dan from class. I'm really sorry. I didn't mean to freak you out. I realized it was my friend Dan. He got in a haircut. I didn't recognize him. <laughs> I thought he was saying, hey, where are you going? But actually, he was just saying, hey, where are you going? <laughs> so at this point, I realized I'm on a downward mental spiral. And maybe it's time to make some changes. So I start talking to people about my condition for the first time. And my boss is actually really cool about it. He lets me start working from home some days. And I take those two business cards out of my wallet. And I think it has been a year. Maybe I need to call one of these numbers. But here's the thing. I have Googled vaginal physical therapy. And I have Googled vaginal surgery. First of all, never do that. You will never be glad that you did. Uh, Second of all, reviews are mixed. (laughs) And third, uh, this might just be a weird thing about me, but I have kind of a phobia about sharp objects around my vagina. I don't know. Sue me. So I decide... I can't think about vaginal surgery yet. It's not time for that yet. But I do call and make an appointment with a vaginal physical therapist. And in case you are not lucky enough to be familiar with vaginal physical therapy, uh, what happens is the physical therapist uh, reaches up in there and massages your vagina from the inside for a while to stimulate blood flow. 
So a few times a week, I would go into this office and have a casual chat about current events with a lady whose entire hand is in my vagina, which is <laughs> totally normal. And I started to make some progress. I could have a glass of wine. I could occasionally have a cup of coffee. I could wear pants. Do I amaze you? <laughs> but the thing is, sex still wasn't happening. And it felt like I was hitting a plateau. I wasn't making any more progress. So sat my boyfriend, Justin, down, and I told him, you know, I understand if you don't want to do this anymore. You're in your 20s. You deserve to have a normal sex life. It's, it's been two years at this point. And he looked at me and he said, Aaron, we've been together for years. I love you. I'm not going to leave just because things are hard. Yeah, right? It's pretty sweet. <laughs> and it meant a lot. It really did. But there was a part of me that just really didn't believe him, that thought surely he will get sick of this eventually, and then we'll break up, and then I'll, what, like, start dating in New York City with a broken vagina? <laughs> like, on what date do you bring that up? Do you have that conversation? Is that a first date? thing that you share that or is it more appropriate to wait until the third date I don't know the etiquette alone is overwhelming to me <laughs> I didn't want to date anybody else there was nobody else like Justin there was nobody else who cared as much about Jason Statham as I did and I already knew that <laughs> so as the years went by two years became three years became four years I was still in that doubt and that fear until one day, we were doing a show, kind of like this one, and at the end, Justin got down on one knee, and he proposed to me. And I thought, wow, how real must this be if he's willing to commit to me for the rest of his life, even with everything? And I decided that I wanted to match his sacrifice with my sacrifice. So I got out that business card, and I made an appointment with the vaginal surgeon. I went in for that appointment, and I meant business. I filled out those forms, you know, where you rank your pain from 1 to 10. I circled 10 on every single one because I was fucking serious. <laughs> it took me back, and he examined me. And he told me that I was not a candidate for vaginal surgery. And I was crushed because this was the last hope. This, there were no more business cards in my wallet after this. Was, this was the only thing that I knew to do. But then he told me that I was a candidate for a newer, more experimental procedure and that's how I ended up paying $5,000 to have a shit ton of Botox injected into my vagina. That's right. My vagina is super wrinkle-free. It's like Billy Crystal's face down there. Like that image. <laughs> but here's the thing. It worked. Thank you. right thanks to the magical powers of Botox I now have a fully functioning vagina thank you thank you 
In fact, not to brag or anything, but it functions on a pretty regular basis. (laughs) And Justin and I have now been married for five years. And even though I really hope science gets its act together and uncovers the medical mystery of the human vagina, and I wouldn't wish this experience on anybody else, it really meant a lot this summer to sit and watch Hobbs and Shaw next to a person who I knew loved me unconditionally. Thanks, everybody. They say we're young and we don't know We won't find out until we grow Well, I don't know if all that's true Cause you got me, baby, I've got you This is Risk. This is Handsome and Gretel behind me now. And we just heard from Aaron Barker, who you can find on Twitter and Instagram at Aaron H. Barker. Before that, a little interstitial by our episode editor, Jeff Barr. And now I want to talk about Tis the season to elect benefits through your workplace. Most people know open enrollment as decision time for healthcare coverage, but it's also the perfect moment to reassess your life insurance needs, to properly provide for their families. Most people need 10 times the life insurance coverage that they get from their jobs, which means that your employer life insurance is leaving you underinsured. That's where policy genius can help. I have been amazed to be learning just how thorough and how helpful they are over at Policy Genius. It's the easy way to shop for a life insurance plan that's not tied to your job. In minutes, you can compare quotes from top insurers to find the best price. Once you apply, the Policy Genius team will handle all the paperwork and red tape. The life insurance you buy through Policy Genius stays with you even if you leave your job, and Policy Genius doesn't just make it easier to get life insurance. They can also help you find the right home and auto insurance and disability insurance, too. So when you're looking at your workplace benefits this month, make sure to double-check your life insurance options, then go to policygenius.com to get quotes and apply in minutes. Policy Genius, the easy way to compare and buy life insurance. Now, our final story on this week's episode is so moving to me. I've heard it many times, but it gets me every time. This is Ernest Anfin, a fan of the show, who reached out to us when we were coming to St. Paul a few months back, shared this story at the show, and it was just a knockout. Here he is now. This is Ernest Anfin with a story we call Marilyn.
So we're going to go back to a sub-zero day in January of 2003. I was meeting with my divorce attorney in the Thrivent Cafeteria in downtown Minneapolis. We were getting together to talk about the results of her investigation. She was investigating the activities of my soon-to-be ex-wife. We sat down, and of course, initially the conversation was light and casual, but shortly thereafter, she put down her fork, she quit eating her salad, and she looked at me with tears welling up in her eyes, and she said, there's just no easy way to tell you this. You're on the brink of bankruptcy, and you may not be the biological father of your children. My family was destroyed by deception and infidelity, and I found out at the Thriving Cafeteria. My ex, unbeknownst to me, had run up tens of thousands of dollars in credit card debt using my forged signature and a secret P.O. box. The interest alone on this debt every month was around $4,000. And that's not, that was the good news. (laughs) The bad news was that she had had an affair throughout our entire marriage, one that predated our marriage. In fact, predated the conception of our children by several years. And until I was sitting there in that cafeteria, I knew nothing about this man, this stranger, who was so intertwined in my life. All I knew was that he was 20 or 30 years older than me, but as my lawyer said, he might be the father of my children. My children, two of them. August was about four at the time. He was this blonde-haired, big-boned boy that looked like he could crush any of his friends. But if the other boys were roughhousing, August was more likely to be off in a corner, painting a picture or singing a song, lost in his own world. His favorite thing to do every night was to grab a book and crawl in my lap. And we would read that book until its last page, and then he would flip them all over and say, again, And we would read that book over and over and over again until he fell asleep in my arms. My daughter, Ava, was about a year old at the time, a year and a half. Even at that age, she was very mischievous, and she continues to be very mischievous. She, uh, if you need a visual reference, think of Boo from Monsters, Inc. At that point in her life, that was the way, shape, and form of Ava. Like Boo, she had a tender side as well. I remember one day the kids were playing in the toy closet. It was this big closet like the size of a room. And I was in the corner just crying. And I was sitting there watching the kids. They were playing with their action figures. They were jabbering back and forth with each other. And I was watching this ballet of sorts. And I couldn't wrap my head around the idea that perhaps these two beautiful creatures, the most beautiful things that I thought I could ever create in my life, were a lie. I knew my marriage was a lie, but what if this was a lie too? What if I had nothing to do with them being on this planet? Ava noticed me crying, and she crawled across the floor and into my lap and buried her head 
in my chest and wrapped her arms around me, squeezing as tightly as her little body could squeeze me, all the while just gingerly patting me on the back. It was amazing. I mean, this little girl who couldn't even talk yet was trying to take my pain away, was trying to squeeze the pain out of me, a pain that could not be taken away. I knew then that, of course, the biology didn't matter. I loved her. I loved August. I had to stay and fight for this love. The only way this love could be lost is if I lost it, if I destroyed it. But the fight wasn't easy. I still to this day don't understand. She wouldn't agree to joint custody, would not agree to it. And to this day, she still, we get along fine, but amazingly. But... um, We've been divorced for 18 years, so it takes as much energy to hate as it takes to love, and I have tried to neither hate nor love her. Obviously, the love part isn't the issue, but the hate part, you got to let that go. The uh, divorce process was against me. She was the primary caregiver. Regardless of everything she did, she was the stay-at-home mom. I was the big, firm lawyer with a crazy work schedule, And let me tell you something, the court really doesn't give a shit about you and your kids if you're going through a divorce. The court system wants to take the easy path. And the easy path in our situation was to award custody to my ex and hope that I went away. But even when things seemed to be going well, when I felt I was making some progress and the presumption of the primary caregiver was dwindling... She had another club that she would use against me whenever she had the opportunity, and that club was depression. I came from a long line of depressed people, and my personal depression was compounded by the golden boy status I had growing up in a small town in Iowa. I felt like the world's eyes were always upon me. I felt like I had to be the perfect athlete, the perfect student, the perfect person. And even though I'd been in therapy and on medication for years, my ex knew how much I was tormented by failure or the perception of failure would be magnified in my mind a hundred times, a thousand times. And here I was failing at the biggest thing in life, failing as a father, failing as a husband. The system had no problem picking up that club and helping her hit me with it. With that club, I was not only the non-primary caregiver, I was also not fit because I was depressed. And it wasn't just the system and my ex. Everywhere I went, it felt like people criticized me. I would go to Target after work to get groceries, and I'd have my kids with me, just like any mom. But people weren't used to seeing a man alone with a kid back then in the early 2000s. And if my kids acted up at all, inevitably some old person would come up to me and say, well, Dad, that wasn't such a good idea now, was it? Coming shopping without the wife? And then they'd laugh and walk away. And those comments happen far more often than you can imagine, unless you're another divorced father. But the shopping critics weren't the worst. The worst was at church. I grew up in a family where I was told that if you're in pain, if you're in need of support, go to church. And I was in pain, and I needed support, so I went to church. But it didn't matter what church we went to. And again, I don't think these people were wanting to harm me. But after the service, some older person would come and say, hey, Dad, where's the wife? Is she at work today? Or they'd ask my kids, where's Mom? 
And again, I don't think they meant anything by these questions, consciously. But in my mind, they cut like a knife to my bone. I mean, to me, they sought assurance that I belonged there. My kids belonged there. We were a Christian family. There was a wife. There was a mom. She just wasn't there that day. But she's around, certainly. We're not some misfits that wandered in off the street. And all of the negativity and criticism that I was feeling at that time seemed to be embodied in this old woman who would sit in the lobby of my post-divorce apartment building day after day in the lounge chairs next to the mailboxes. She was a very small woman, fragile, probably about 80. She had this dark-dyed hair and this white skin, eyebrows painted on her forehead, these half-lens reading glasses that were always perched on the tip of her nose and a chain around her neck. And she saw everything that I went through day after day after day. She saw all of my struggles, all my failures, because she was always there. She saw me the day that Ava thought it would be hilarious to poop in the pool, which (laughs) was right next to the lobby. And I was frantically swimming around in the pool trying to pick up the little poop things because they were either going to disintegrate or they were going to go on the filter system of the pool. (laughs) And I... I I felt like a bad dad that day, but shit happens, right? (laughs) She was there the day that Ava threw my keys down the elevator shaft, and we had to get maintenance to fish them out. And you know, it's not like these things happen, and you're all happy with, oh, that's so cute. Years from now, I was mad, you know? I was mad. And she saw me mad, and she saw me lose it. And she was just always there. She never said anything. She never did anything. She just stared at us. And she was there the day that I opened my mailbox, and there were two envelopes in that mailbox from the Memorial Blood Center. If you don't know what the Memorial Blood Center is, it's a good thing, because that's where Hennepin County sends you if there's a paternity issue and you need your blood tested. So those two envelopes were going to tell me once and for all whether I was the biological father of my children. You know, it wasn't Jerry Springer, wasn't, uh, there was no drama, no drum roll, nothing like that. I open the envelopes and it's just two charts with just numbers and numbers. And I'm frantically searching the charts trying to figure out what do they say. And at the bottom I see words, finally, and it says percentile probability of paternity. And next to those words were the numbers, nine, nine point whatever, whatever, whatever percentage. At that moment, a huge weight was lifted from my shoulders. It was news that I had waited months to hear. It meant that I was the father of both of my kids, and I fell into those lounge chairs, and I cried immediately, uncontrollably. And through those tears, I kept searching that form, those charts, to make sure I was seeing what I thought I was seeing. And when I came to my senses, I looked up, and there sitting across the table from me was the old lobby lady with her eyebrows painted on her forehead and her black eyes staring at me and her brow furrowed. She didn't need to say anything. She was telling me everything I needed to know with her expression. She was saying, young man, I don't know what the hell this emotional outburst is all about, (laughs) but not in my lobby. Not here, not now, not ever. (laughs) She said nothing, offered nothing, asked nothing. I just knew it was time to leave. So I gathered up my charts and my envelopes, and I quietly went back to my apartment. 
And all of this judgment, criticism, negativity led my depression into a very dark place. Many nights when I went to bed, I felt as if there was a demon lying next to me, and the demon did not speak. The demon hissed. I mean, it, it hissed. And it, and it told me the same things over and over, minute after minute. You're no man. You're no husband. Your wife fucking cheated on you with an old guy. You couldn't even compete with an old man. What kind of a man are you? Oh, and your kids, yeah, they love you. Your kids are infants, which means they're idiots. They don't know you. They just love you because they don't have a choice. When they grow up and they figure out what kind of a fucked up, depressed asshole you are, they'll hate you because you will probably fuck them up over the next decade or so as well. The world's right. We'd be better off without you. Your ex, the courts, they're all right. Just fucking go away. And minute after minute, I would lie there and just want to go away, to escape that demon. And at the foot of my bed, there was a patio door, a sliding patio door that led to the ninth floor balcony of my apartment. And beyond that balcony, there was this beautiful meadow of light. It was the lights of Edina just spread out beneath that balcony like little flowers blossoming on this very, very dark hillside. And I knew that all I had to do was walk across my bedroom, slide that door open, and lean over that rail and fall into that bed of light. Fall into that meadow of light and sleep forever. That sleep would quiet these voices. That sleep would make the demon go away. That sleep would leave me in peace, finally. I just wanted the struggle to end. I felt like I was Job from the Bible. I felt God had long, long ago abandoned me. And the most that I could pray for was for God's wrath to pass over me, for the night to end, for the demon to quit hissing, for the meadow of light to disappear, for this struggle to just stop. And minute after minute, it was a fight with that door. And the worst fight of all was that I didn't know what the future held. One day was a particularly bad day. We went to court to receive the custody evaluator's recommendation. And if you've been in a divorce, you also know that nothing can happen as far as custody is concerned until your evaluator gives you a recommendation. Ina had been to court. Well, Ina was the custody evaluator. She had been to court many, many times, and every time she'd go to court, she'd get up and she'd say to the judge, oh, your honor, I'm so sorry, I am not ready. I need more time. I have a lot of cases, and this man, this father, is being very difficult. You know, he doesn't understand the whole primary caregiving thing, and he's depressed, and I've got lots of cases. And every day, the judge would give her a continuance, every day that we were supposed to get that report. That day, she left the court and she saw how frustrated I was and she walked up to me and she said, you've got to come to an agreement with your wife. You're going to lose your kids. And I said, Ina, I'm never going to voluntarily give up my kids. She said, well, if I file my report, you'll lose. And I said, Ina, I am never going to make your job easy. If I'm going to lose my kids, you're going to have to take them away from me. File your fucking report. And I turned around and walked away from her. There was nobody who cheered me at that point. 
even after the trauma that day, you know, life didn't end. It was a Wednesday, so I had my kids that night, and I had no laundry. Laundry is always there. We all know that. So I took my kids, and I went down to the laundry room of my apartment building, and it was this incredibly bright room. Everything was white, and in the corner they had some plastic chairs and a little table and, you know, magazines and some kids' books. And I took the kids over to the corner, and I left them there. And guess what? The old lobby lady is sitting there, staring at me that day, (laughs) saying nothing, asking nothing, offering nothing. And I just didn't have time or energy to deal with her. I just, I never dealt with her, really. I dealt with her by ignoring her. And I just walked past her. I started to sort clothes. I was too preoccupied with the whole Ina situation. And I was sorting my clothes, and I was like, my God, what have I done? That was the stupidest thing in the world. I mean... I felt like I'd signed the death warrant on my custody dispute. I thought I was forcing Ina's hand to pull the switch on that electric chair. I mean, what could I do? Could I apologize to her? How would I apologize? Well, should I? No, you did the right thing. You stood up to her. That was the right thing to do. And I was shaking, and I couldn't stop myself from shaking. It was like I had Parkinson's or something. And then all of a sudden, whack, August! And there was a scream from the corner. There was this clatter of plastic and ripped pages and skin being slapped. And I went to the corner, and I picked up Ava, and I grabbed August by the hand, and I dragged him back to the washing machine. And at that point, every molecule in my body was exploding. It was... Bursting, It felt like it was bursting out of every pore of my skin, and I was doing everything I could to just keep it together. But I was losing the battle. The membrane was breaking, and I was on the verge of tears. And then all of a sudden, I felt this hand on my shoulder, and I was startled, and I turned around, and it's the old lady from the lobby. I'm like, okay, let's go. You decide today. Today of all the fucking days, you're going to come up to me and tell me I'm a shitty dad. I've been waiting for this, lady. And today you picked the wrong day. I don't care if you're 80. I don't. I'm going to rip your fucking head off. She looked at me with an expressionless face above her little reading glasses. And she said in the sweetest, kindest voice, she said, I don't know who you are. But you need to know, you're a wonderful father. All of that energy that was traveling away from the center of my being at the speed of light just immediately reversed course and came imploding into my heart, and I fell into this 80-year-old woman. I fell into her body, and she wrapped her arms around me and squeezed me as tightly as an arthritic 80-year-old woman could squeeze me. And gingerly patted me on the back. And I said, who are you? (laughs) She said, I'm Marilyn. (laughs) Ava was still crying into my neck, still upset by the fight with her brother. I don't even think she noticed what was going on. August was standing next to me, his mouth agape. We had all been terrified of this woman for years, (laughs) scared to death of her. And here she was being nice, not just nice, just genuinely wonderful. And I said, Marilyn, I go, I can't tell you how much I needed to hear what you just told me. And she said, my dear, what's wrong? It can't be that bad. I whispered to her, I said, Marilyn, I'm fighting my ex for custody and I'm going to lose. She took me by the shoulders and pushed me back so that she could look at me 
in the eye. And she said, well, I don't know anything about any of that. But anybody who's ever seen the three of you together can see how much you love each other. You can never lose that. No one can ever take that away from you. I'm not sure what happened that day in the laundry room. But if God has ever been present in my life, he was present in that moment. Marilyn was God's voice. Marilyn was God's touch. Marilyn was God's face. Because of Marilyn, I knew God hadn't abandoned me. And after that night, I never again heard the hissing voice of that demon. I never again considered the peace promised by that meadow of light. Ina filed her report. And true to Ina's word, she recommended that my ex get custody. And I lost custody of my kids. I was relegated to being a weekend dad. But I was a dad. And I'm still a dad. August is now 20 years old and goes to college in Chicago. Ava is a senior in high school. And uh, still, when she and I are together at night, we pray to God. And I kiss her on her forehead. And she tells me she loves me. Marilyn saved me not just that night, but she saved me so that I could experience a lifetime filled with dogs and cats. I don't know how many betta fish or hermit crabs, <laughs> a snake. I was able to experience countless trips to the cabin, band concerts and Dairy Queen blizzards. Because of her, I experienced for 18 years the joy, love, and fulfillment of fatherhood. One woman stood up and embraced me, held me close when it felt like the rest of the world was trying to push me away. One woman restored my belief in myself, my belief in myself as a father. One woman renewed my faith in love, my faith in the love of God. And Marilyn, I, I know you're probably not with us anymore, but I just want to say thank you.
That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Fruit Bats behind me now, and we just heard from Ernest Anfin. Be sure and share the podcast with as many people as you can. Sometimes it's a matter of sitting down with someone on a car ride and playing a story for them, or sometimes it's just as easy as like sending them a link to an episode and telling them, hey, the story I like starts 19 minutes in here. If they're unfamiliar with podcasts, but they like books, you can recommend The Risk Book, which is available wherever books are sold, in paperback, ebook, and uh, audiobook, and maybe that will get them listening to the podcast eventually. And don't forget, there's so much more bonus content to be found at our Patreon, patreon.com slash risk. Whenever you want to know where Risk is appearing live next, just go to risk-show.com slash tour. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Risk Show. On Twitter and Instagram, I'm at the Kevin Allison, and we teach storytelling at thestorystudio.org. So if you want to learn a thing or two about how storytelling is done, Visit us there at thestorystudio.org. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Just wait, wait, wait for the snow. Just wait, wait, wait for the snow. Just wait, wait, wait for the snow. Help us, please, please help us, little blue engine. Then she said, I think I can. 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 Hooray! Hooray! And that's the story of the little engine that.